Katie Lazarus. Hi, welcome back to Employee of the Month. If this is a repeat episode for you, you can also subscribe on iTunes now because we are going to be bringing you episodes every week, which is really thrilling. And we're doing so because of phenomenal guests like AJ Jacobs, who's on today's show. He is an editor at Esquire and also contributes to NPR a lot. And he's the author of these incredible books where he makes himself the subject of them and then puts them through puts himself through all these arduous tasks. Uh, so you should definitely check out My Life as an Experiment, which is called The Guinea Pig Diaries, colon, My Life as an Experiment, The Know-It-All, The Year of Living Biblically, and Drop Dead Healthy, which is his latest. I have always been looking for a twin brother. Like, I just know he's out there somewhere. And when I met AJ, I was like, this is it. This is him. So I hope you can see why I feel like we should be members of the same tribe. And uh, if there are adoption papers to sign, as always, uh, please let me know where to send them. Here's my interview with AJ. AJ, you have written for Entertainment Weekly. You're the editor-at-large at Esquire Magazine. You've written for the New York Times and New York Magazine, Dental Economics. Very proud, yes. Oprah, The Today Show, Good Morning America, Conan O'Brien, and you're regularly on NPR. Thank you, yes. I cannot deny any of those. (laughs) What's it like to finally be on the Employee of the Month show? Well, it is uh, quite an experience. I'm very flattered. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier that I'm I'm glad that uh, I'm a one-man operation because I don't want to share this honor with anyone. So I'm glad to be the single employee of the month. But I was being genuine when I said that it must be nice to have something of your own when you do have three kids because they're at the age five, five and eight that they're really into their own stuff. And not they sharing. are. Yeah, it's something of my own. I mean, it's funny that we teach our kids sharing, 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 and then uh, it's very socialist. The world in, in their... Uh, when they're young, yes. it's like a kibbutz. Everything should be shared, and then they get old, and it's capitalism, and they they, don't, they shouldn't share. So it's we're sending the mixed messages. Well, and then the, I do you see that documentary, Nursery University. <laughs> no, I didn't see it. Um, Mark Simon did this uh, documentary about getting into nursery school, and it was so hard to get in in New York. And of course, half the schools you wouldn't want to send your children to based purely on the parents, but there was this. Um, there were different philosophies, and you you saw the capitalist element being fed earlier to kids ah, at some schools than others. Interesting, or at least that you know you are the best and the brightest, right? And fostering this independence. Interesting. Because generally, it's more of a sharing, sharing, sharing. Till when middle school? Yeah, I guess I don't know when they turn. I'll I'll let you know. Okay. I we actually once went to a seminar on parenting, and there was this woman who. Um, who told us that kids do not understand the concept when they're like three they don't understand the concept of sharing and that they should um that when the, the when the brother tries to take a toy from the other brother that you should instruct the one brother to hold on to that toy you say hold on tight hold on tight it was the craziest uh advice i think i'd ever heard because it's like I'm upset as a female just knowing that these... <laughs> I mean, because I think that the toughest task is to raise young boys to have empathy, and girls, mm. to have empathy... Well, that's true. ...without having to necessarily go through hardship to get there. That's a great point. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the most difficult thing with, with children today. You're right. 
I mean, my kids, they have empathy, but mostly for inanimate objects. Okay. Like, Like if the TV is broken, they really feel bad for the TV. But it doesn't extend to humans. Do they even have it towards animals? Not really. Okay. <laughs> it's only electronics. And I think it's more driven by they want to watch the TV. You think? I... <laughs> <laughs> That's my theory. I'm going to test it out. So speaking of theories and testing them out, you started off, it seems like, as a reporter um, covering entertainment. That's true. That was a question disguised as a statement. That was really a statement disguised as a question. Oh, I like it. Whatever it was, <laughs> it happens to be true. I worked at Entertainment Weekly magazine, so I wrote about TV stars, usually like B, B grade. They never gave me the A list. I don't know. They didn't trust me. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? And I'm sure it may not be one incident, but... It was mostly by default, because literally I was a philosophy major at college and you know I graduated there are not a lot of philosophy openings at fortune 500 companies or any company and you didn't want to go into academia either I didn't really want to go into academia uh, and I love the idea of journalism because it's like uh, going to school all the time it's like without actually having to go to school it's like learning about a new topic. It's one of the last places you can be a generalist and a dilettante and still get paid. Comple- I mean, I, to me, it seems like the best way to extend the liberal arts education. Yeah, exactly. Um, I went to Wesleyan and, and you went to Brown, so I, I feel like they're probably relatively similar. They're the same. That You can graduate in basket weaving or in philosophy. I mean, you can do something very serious or not. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. Um but that does seem like journalism offers this way to, to really get interested and in, invested in a subject right. as long as you want. Um, if you want to extend it, you'll write a book about it. Exactly. And if not, you just do an article. Right. Yeah, you're totally obsessed with something for, depending on where you work, for a week, for a month, for a day, and then you move on to another topic, which is good for people who have short attention spans, like myself. I wanted to hear about your experience. You went from the New York Observer... Right. To Entertainment Weekly. Exactly. And uh, Entertainment Weekly, uh, I was a writer there, and I was, I got in there because I was pitching stories to the editors, freelance stories. So I was... What kinds of stories? Well, I am proud to say that I was the first to write about the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Oh, are you serious? Well, not the first to come up with it. I wish I could take credit for coming up with it, but it was a game on the internet, and I said, this is cool, and I pitched it to Entertainment Weekly, and and I wrote a little piece. You're probably Um, six degrees away from the person who came up with the original (laughs) phrase, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. (laughs) <laughs> that is probably true. And I've seen Kevin Bacon walking down the street, so I feel I'm, I'm pretty close Have to you him ever there. told him? I have never told him. I don't know how excited he would be. But uh, but that's sort of the beauty, I find, is the, the, <laughs> the lack of response. <laughs> For him, when I first called his publicist, she was very angry at me. I didn't think it was a negative article. I thought it was exciting that, you know, he's the center of the universe, but she did not appreciate it. I got yelled at by a publicist yesterday on email where I I couldn't have someone on the show. I had asked her to be on the show, but then it was going to have to be a limited interview. And so I said, could she possibly do either a live, the next live show, or could I come to her and do a longer form interview, which I get to do with you, which is the best, frankly. Right. And I got a long terse email about how Letterman would never rescind an offer and I wanted to be like 
yeah, that's because you can actually show up to do Letterman <laughs> and not get on. <laughs> Good so point. I, I was getting you should have have, her, have her on the show and bumped her. That would be sorry. We ran out of room. I couldn't believe I was getting schooled in my own profession. Like you'll never make it, and then I wanted to. Be like, I don't want to make it as a booker. I'm really just trying to <laughs> make sure that I maximize the time with that person. But. That does seem quite odd um, and painful. Very painful. So, so Kevin Bacon's publicist was not as happy as she should have been. Yes, and uh, yeah, as a young reporter, it's intimidating when you get yelled at. But whatever. And I, I think they were happy when it came out. Great. That it was not a uh, a hatchet job on Kevin Bacon. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I did that, and then I worked in Entertainment Weekly for about five or six years, writing and editing. And then the edit one of the designer at Entertainment Weekly went to Esquire. And he mentioned me to the editor of Esquire, and that's how I got in. So it is a lot, as they say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Or sh- or they should say it's not what you know, it's whom you know. But no one yes. says that because it's pretentious. Well, and accurate, and therefore no one would know to say that. Um, I mean, I worked hard. I, I will say I did work hard. I can you talk about that a little bit? You, you, I've heard you mention in other interviews that you're a workaholic, and I wanted to know what that means. I am a bit of a workaholic. I got it from my dad, who just never stops working. Like, and he's a lawyer. He's a lawyer, and he's written he's written more books than me. Nineteen? Yeah, something like that. Nineteen books, and they're long. They're not short books. They're like, you know, twelve hundred pages. And uh, I I haven't read all of them, I have to confess. Maybe that's my next book, reading all my dad's books. They're a little dense. What uh, if you translated and distilled them all down for the rest of us and it turned out to be like seven pages? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good. Seven riveting pages. He, he also is known, and I had to write this down, for the most footnotes in a law review article. He's had 4,824 footnotes. That is right. He's very proud of that. Uh, like you, it's the world record. It's the world record. I mean, you'll read his articles, and there's like two sentences of text, and then the rest of the page is filled up with footnotes. Well, he should be proud because, first of all, he started a genre of uh, satirical writing that has made fun of those footnotes. I ah. think you can you know, say that David Foster Wallace and others... He totally ripped it <laughs> off. R- David Foster Wallace ripped it off I don't know if he's ripped it off, ripped it off or you're spoofing your dad. <laughs> <laughs> but your dad was amused in that sense. That's true. I should tell him. You're right. And he's a world record holder, which is very, very exciting. He tried to get it into the Guinness Book of World Records, but I guess they're more interested in like longest beard, longest mustache. But he, got, he did get it into Harper's Index. You really do have your own voice, and you've created sort of a, your own genre in um, writing. Well, you're very nice to say so. I mean, I didn't create the genre. It has been like um, George Plimpton. Uh, He's a, he, a very lesser-known writer that people might not know about. <laughs> yes. Uh, but he did, you know, he did sports. He did. He would go play professional football for a game or get hit in the face by a professional boxer. Yes. Um, and I'm a big fan. I loved his work. So I I decided I, I like that genre and I wanted to do it. I'm not a big sports fan. And uh, so I sort of applied it to different realms, like social, the social world. And his journalism... I, I came to know it as literary journalism, but that wasn't the original title for that genre of um, experiential. Yeah, it's called all sorts of things. What so, is it called? Because well, whatever you want to call it, there's like experiential, experimental, there's um, 
method journalism, which I like, kind of sort of like method acting. There's immersion journalism. There's stunt journalism. A lot of people call it. Stunt that seems journal. to be a little bit of an insult, though, right? The stunt journalism. I uh, possibly, but I actually wrote an article in Wired about how I am a huge fan of stunts. Like yes. uh, in the. Uh, in the encyclopedia, I read the encyclopedia for one of my books, and I read about this guy named Henry Bl- Henry Blondin, who was a French tightrope walker, and he he walked across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Yes, he's a thir- third generation tightrope walker. His family is a uh, is a no. That's the new one. Oh, I'm confusing him. I'm this sorry. is the new. I See what I this guy did it in like 1871. Oh wow! And what I thought was great is he stopped in the middle. He brought a stove on his back, and he stopped in the middle, and he cooked an omelet. Uh, oh, fabulous. It probably was really good, too, because he's French. I know yeah, Canadian, exactly. but they're very good, good cooks. All right. <laughs> no, he is French. Uh, so, yeah. So, there you go. I'm a big fan of stunts like his. I can, and I'm afraid of heights, so I'm not going to be doing that. But I, I like these sort of intellectual stunts. So, tell me about him, because I was mixing him up with a, the, a new person who recently... Okay, we walked over Niagara Falls. Did you hear about that? Person? Yeah, yeah. That uh, That's what uh, uh, I was thinking about it recently, because I uh, I read about this new guy. But uh, but he's certainly so not the first. So, the original um, was French, not Canadian. Right. And does Henry not want to be confused as Canadian, so I apologize for that, too. Yeah, please. His um, estate might come after you. Yes, I apologize. So he did that 18... What was the year? Uh, it was in the 1800s, okay. I, th- I think around 1870. Do uh, people project onto you, because I just was projecting onto you, that you were a, a human encyclopedia and would know all the answers <laughs> to these things because you've done things like um, memorized or at least read all of the encyclopedia. Yeah, I don't remember everything in the encyclopedia, I'm afraid to say. I remember probably like 1% or 2%. But uh, but I gotta say, one or two percent is a lot more than I would have known before. You know, it's a lot better off than I was before. So it's it's something, and there's always something. Uh, whatever I see, it sparks a memory in my brain. So you know, if I see a cat, I'll think of how the Egyptians mummified their cats, and they also mummified the mice so the cats would have something to eat in the afterlife. So they were very considerate to their that cats. That is very sweet. It has a sweet story. Except, except for the mice. They, and except for that they, you know, they killed our people. But other than that... Some of the them age... needed to go. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm just terrible. <laughs> but it is, it is good to do... Um, oh, I don't know if it was that sweet to begin with, so the story of the mummifying the, the, yeah, maybe the mice for the cats. I mean, it's not so great for the mice. And what you're saying is that it was even worse for the Jewish mice. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, so when you were writing these articles at Entertainment Weekly, um, they were on B-list celebrities is what you've called them. Did you enjoy doing that? I did enjoy it. I, I did. I, uh, I got to meet great people. I got I contracted colds from several celebrities, which I Can was you name proud. them? Sure. Ellen DeGeneres gave me a cold. And um, Was it handshaking? How did you get it? I assume it was handshaking. Okay. We didn't get much farther than that okay. physically. Uh, I didn't know sharing reason. a mic or, or something. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Victor, oh, wait, what's this guy's name? Oh, now, see, this is embarrassing. I read the encyclopedia. I can't even remember his name. He, Ernest Borgnine. There oh, wow. Is. Ernest, he gave me a cold. Yeah, but these are very established people. I was proud. That's what I'm telling you. They're not B-list celebrities, yeah. Uh, that's true. That's true. Michael J. Fox, he gave me a cold. Well, no, that's very, very impressive. 
That's the end of my. That's that's it. Yeah, but you don't need any more after that. That's really awesome. <laughs> and then when you went to Esquire, were you going to still be doing these entertainment type articles? What, what was the deal when you? I was hired there to edit their front section. Poached. You were poached. Well, be nice of you to say. But I was uh, the front of the book, as they call it in magazines. So that's the front set where they have the little articles, and that's what I was doing in Entertainment Weekly right before I left, and. And Entertainment Weekly, I was I was relatively somewhat qualified because I knew a lot about movies, TV. But at Esquire, I had to be the uh, the car editor. I didn't own a car. I grew up in New York City. I don't really drive. Do you have a driver's much. license? I do have a driver. I know how, but uh, it's not a passion of mine. So, and then there was, uh, you know, I had to be the uh, the wine editor as well, and you know, I. I can bear. If you blindfolded me, I don't think I could tell the difference between red and white. But isn't that? Without aren't the they finding that yes. out now <laughs> that a lot of the people who yeah exactly a lot of <laughs> the don't either. That's right. So uh, I'm as good as they are. And you could switch the whole thing about the car into saying you could be really smug about it and say you know I don't want to leave a carbon footprint and I've made a <laughs> political decision instead of Great. The, I could the be truth. the subway editor. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, it was uh, yeah I I felt. Uh, daunting it was a daunting experience but but i uh it did feel daunting to become this jack of all trades and and having to study up and And the learning curve was very steep but apparently that's what's good for you if you uh if you take on something and that's challenging was your editor um helpful how how did you learn how to figure all these things out I just learn by doing, which is kind of what I do with the books, is I mm-hmm. learn by doing. I take on a, a, a topic I know nothing about and then spend a year or two trying to become an expert. And so does it start as, I want to do this one article, and then you get so excited by it that it becomes the book, or do you just want to do the book right away? I, I'm trying to figure out, like, when does it become something you want to invest your whole life in? Right. Well, I did originally pitch the idea of reading the entire encyclopedia as an article to Esquire, and they rejected it. Thank God, because can you imagine spending a year and a half reading the encyclopedia for an article? So thank God they rejected it. I turned it into a book. Uh, and then uh, the religion one came about just because I was fascinated with religion, having no religion at all growing up. I find all of these, I mean, I want to start with the one in 2004, so that's your, I guess it's your third book, technically, right? The Know-It-All? Right, that's right. Um, and it was a way to carry on a tradition or one-up your dad, who had, who had gotten to the letter B. That's right. My dad, when I was a kid, started to read the encyclopedia, but as you say, only made it up to Bolivia, say. Okay. So uh, I wanted to you know, remove that black mark from our family history. Yeah. and Not uh, to belittle him. You found it amusing. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, yeah, I decided to dive in and, and read it. And it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was painful and it was, there were parts that were dreadfully dull, but there were also a lot of fascinating things. There are things in the encyclopedia, you know, you can't believe they're... Like what? Like the fact that the philosopher Rene Descartes has a fetish for cross-eyed women. And I feel a bit like a traitor saying it. I think the Wikipedia is quite amazing. It is not... Exciting. It's... The the amount of information is just extraordinary. Not all of it's correct. That's true. But I would say 
80 to 90 percent of it is correct. I also love the democratic nature of it. I mean, I, I love this idea that all of these people all over the world can contribute and do contribute. And they do it so fast. Like I was, uh, when I was watching the Olympics, I went on to look up Michael Phelps like two minutes after he won the race. And it had already, it said, Michael Phelps is a retired American swimmer. It's like, how do you, he retired two minutes ago. It's unbelievable. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Let's let's talk about the the year of living biblically um, first, and then I want to get into your latest one because I I've read both recently. You are nice to to do that. I, no, it was a pleasure. Um, and the year of living biblically, I also want to hear about it because it's being developed into a film. Who knows? I mean, they're all in some stage of development, uh, and they have been for years. So, okay. uh, but I don't know. Do you work on them? Do you get money from that? I get a little bit of money. Nothing, you know. Uh, not, they're not uh, when you say a little bit of money, money or stupid money I guess they used to call okay well so what would stupid money be well I don't get stupid money but what would that be I don't even know what the concept of stupid money is like half a million dollars I consider that stupid money for but, just right because nothing's been made yet exactly so just get just, I from. get a few thousand dollars for optioning okay. them over and over again so that's the good thing they'll, that is great they'll option it and then it'll run out and then they have to option it again so so they're, the fact that they're totally inefficient is uh, is quite beneficial to me. Yes. Well, and the net is that if it was going, they would have to pay you even more, I assume. That's true. Exactly. So, yeah, the year of living biblically, at one point it was being developed at Paramount, and the actor attached was Marlon Wayans. Oh, wow. Which I thought was great, because uh, I was expecting Sean Wayans. To me, that was the perfect casting. <laughs> but Marlon was like a curveball. Where did that come from? I was from? expecting Joquan Phoenix. Or I don't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just thinking with the beard. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think who would look good in, in a really burly beard. Who would look like Jesus was actually what I was trying to figure out. Or a homeless man. Or a homeless man. I keep interrupting. You said you grew up relatively secular. Right. As a, a Jew in, in New York. But I feel like that's enough credits right there. You grew that, up in New York, therefore I'm essentially <laughs> Jewish. What more do that's I need? true. Well, the phrase I used in the book uh, is that I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian. Yes. So not very. But I am, uh, you know, I was fascinated with religion. I, I wanted to know, am I missing out on some huge part of and, and human what, experience? What drew you to, to, at that moment, feel that way? Or had you been feeling that all I your had, life? I had a son, so that okay. was... Uh, I didn't know what to teach him about our heritage. Yeah. And I thought one way to learn about something is to dive in and live it, to immerse myself in it, which is what I had been doing with these other books. So that is, I thought, you know, this. what if I tried to read the Bible and do what it says? How would that make my life, how would that change my life? How would it make it better? How would it make it worse? How would it make it crazier? And so that you did this for a year. I did it for a year. Exactly. And do you talk to your family before you... Do you get the book deal and then come home to your wife and say, <laughs> I got a book deal for this? Or do you talk to her before you even... She No, she does get veto power over these experiments. You know, and she has vetoed some. There have been a lot... Which, which ones did she veto? She vetoed several. One was... Uh, I, I get a lot of suggestions from readers, and one of the recurring suggestions is that uh, I should do the all the positions in the Kama Sutra with my Are you wife. sure that's from readers or from you and you just 
Oh, is it? You've like written your own comments on your comment board. (laughs) It's from J.A. Well, no, I actually, she put the kibosh on it, but to be honest, I I, I would not want to. I'm, you know, I'm a. I don't have the flexibility. Maybe like 15 years ago I could have done that, but I don't think I don't think there was ever a time where I could have done that, and I also... I, there's a reason I do a podcast. I have a face for it, and I'm, I'm happy no, with it. Oh, that's crazy talk. But I think there would be something so unsettling about having people... Although you have posed nude. You did the... That's true. You did an article, Mary Louise Parker. They yeah, did an article there, on this Esquire. was at, at Esquire, and uh, my boss wanted Mary Louise Parker to pose nude in the magazine. So I had to ask her as the editor, and she said, yes... On the condition that the editor of the piece, me, also poses nude so that he can experience what it's like, the, ob- the objectification. So I, I had to get a nude photo shoot, and they actually printed, they printed her beautiful pictures. Oh yeah, there's a picture of her right there. And, uh, and then they printed mine. And we did get letters. We got like an actual canceled subs- subscription. So From seeing you naked. Yeah. You was, must be proud of that. <laughs> It's not good for the ego. I have to say that I did see that article of her and thought it was very demeaning because she's so beautiful, and I thought she's so smart. Why does she have to do this? And when and then you turn the page and saw that she made me. Yeah, and it made me be like, oh yeah, that's why she's really smart and she's really beautiful <laughs> and she knows it and she's totally fine with it. Yeah. That's true. I was very proud of her for coming up with it. I, you know, it was not a pleasant experience, but it was an interesting one. But it was it was perfectly subversive. And the other thing that was great was before I judge her and make all these projections and assumptions about right. her, she knows what's going on. That's true. And I and, will say she got the better deal because. I went in there first, and they had for me, like, a six-pack of Diet Coke or something. And then while I was leaving, they were setting up for her, and they had this palatial spread of... Yeah, because they know she's not going to eat any of it before she gets naked on camera. (laughs) So they're just getting it for (laughs) for takeout? That's going to be used later for someone's bar mitzvah. Ah, that's very smart. Never thought about that. And then they get two for the price, because they're going to charge Esquire, and then they're also going to charge the Rosenbergs. Right. (laughs) So it's a pretty good deal. Really good. (laughs) Um, but so, okay, I, I really do want to hear more about the year of living biblically because I was so, um, I couldn't put it down because it is issues that I grapple with every year and we have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur coming up and I really believe in the community aspects and, and the gratitude and, um, this, but I don't know what to call it, whether it's spirituality or, you know, but I have so much trouble with organized religion and, um, Judaism just because it's the one I inherited. So I was right. so uh, intrigued by your journey. Ah, well, that's nice. I mean, that was one of the things I took away, I, that that there are great things about religion and then there are horrible things. And it's okay to just choose the great things and ignore the horrible things. How do you deal with um, the homophobia and sexism? You had a great... Um, story about your wife and, and her response to some of the sexist Yeah, aspects. she got back at me. Because she would, um, in the Bible it says you cannot touch woman, women during their time of month. And even more than that, if you take Leviticus really literally, you cannot sit on a seat where a menstruating woman has sat because then she has made that seat impure. So my wife found that offensive and sat in every seat in our apartment. And I had to stand for the year could you go on the bed? No, you couldn't. Uh, no, no, I had to have my own little bed. 
Yeah. Where did you did you sleep in your office? I can't remember where I slept. Sometimes I slept on the floor. I remember that. I might have slept in my little office. And then, uh, yeah, and a lot of the times I was just standing. Could you go on the subway? No, I had my own. I had a little portable chair that I took with me and sat on that on the subway. Like a uh, porta potty. <laughs> without the potty part. So more like what they had, booster seat. Yeah, it was called a handy seat. It was actually like a cane. It was for elderly people, and you can open it up and sit down. It's wonderful. I recommend it, even if you're not following the Bible. And what about the homophobic elements? How did you grapple with that? Well, I did have to, I mean, it does say that you have to stone homosexuals. I never actually, I stoned an adulterer. I thought that would get rid of my stoning. Uh, I figure I only needed to stone one person. The police I, are coming. Uh, they're coming <laughs> for you because we are in New York. We are um, at A.J. Jacobs' a, a wonderful home slash office. You stoned an adulterer who came up to you. Right. He came up, I mean, because it like, was the middle of the year and I was really trying to get into the uh, the project. So I looked... I was, looked like a biblical person, so I had the huge beard. I even had the robe. I was wearing sandals. And a guy came up to me and said, why are you dressed like this? And I explained, I'm trying to follow all the rules of the Bible from the Ten Commandments to stoning adulterers. And he said, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you Does this stone? feel like Annie Hall? Like, I happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I happen to have an adulterer right here for you to stone. That is absolutely right. I hadn't thought of it, but he was my Marshall McLuhan. Uh, yeah, so he he volunteered. And I, had, I took out some stones because I had been carrying stones around. Pebbles. Yes, they were pebbles. They were on the smaller side. Because I didn't want to kill him, you know. Uh, but Let his were, wife do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I showed him the pebbles, and I said, I wouldn't stone you with me. Just toss these at you. It won't hurt too much. He grabbed the pebbles from my hand and threw them at me. So I thought, an eye for an eye, also in the Bible. So I tossed one back at him. So that's how I checked that off the list. So I never had to deal with stoning homosexuals. But I did have a large section on homosexuality and and the Bible, and and I met with the first gay Orthodox rabbi. I met with a group of gay evangelical Christians, which I thought was an oxymoron, uh, or at least is, out gay. Tell me about that because it, it is both uh, beautiful to see people taking what they want and and um, reclaiming it for their own, and then at the same time, it also is confusing. To see them claiming something that's also made their lives much more difficult than they needed to. That's a great point. I mean, the key is whether you see the the Bible as a uh, as written in stone or as a living document. It's sort of like you know, do you see the Constitution as as Justice Scalia sees it, or do you see it more as something that that evolves? And I'm on the evolving side. I would so. argue that they seem to see it as something that evolves into whatever they'd like it to be. Because I actually think that when they claim that it's verbatim, right? That they're that's actually not well, I part th- of it. I think you're absolutely. <laughs> so they've evolved. They've created that. I think you've got a great point. I mean, that was one of the things is that uh, that I discovered is that. Even people who claim to take the Bible completely literally, they're just picking and choosing parts that, that they want. So if you were going to take it all literally, you would be doing what I would be doing, which is 
standing on street corners stoning adulterers and and making and, sure you're not wearing mixed fibers as you mixed did fibers exactly that's that's in the bible and in and this in the new testament you know women are not allowed to speak in church so uh, all women would be silent in church there would be no women in, in gospel choirs there's a huge amount of hypocrisy in religion and that was the part that i actually focused on before the project uh, i didn't see the good part of religion until i started to live it and really hang out with these people so they're... then let's talk about that because i thought that was so beautiful to be hearing about from someone who was secular and was skeptical and um... well there is the one one that you mentioned earlier is this idea of gratitude which is in the bible and that's the uh uh, saying thanks and prayers of thanksgiving and so i did a lot of that and that i really think is one of the secrets to happiness is is being grateful in terms of sabbath that's something that you do keep now that's something that you got yes. out of it and gratitude as well absolutely um you've gotten rid of the beard i got rid of the beard although i did keep it in a plastic bag just because it, i felt it was it was like a souvenir. I wanted to keep the, it. was like, and I got quite attached to it you at the end. sell it on Etsy as a stuffed animal or something like that. <laughs> That's a great idea. Well, I did propose to the publisher. I was like, you know, we could do it as a marketing thing, you know, give a little tuft of hair with the first hundred books sold. And they thought that was a repulsive idea. Yes. Which it is, I think. You know, yes. they made the right decision. Yes. Uh, so I'm not even allowed to keep it. I have to keep it under the sink so that my, no one can see it. Yeah. You could actually use it if you get mice. You can stuff it in the wall. wiring, the Brillo pad wiring. Does your publisher just publish whatever you want now because your books have done so well? Do they believe in you and they're like, you know what, we're going to let you do whatever adventure you want? Well, luckily they're very supportive, and uh, but no, you can, they they have to agree on that it's a... A, a worthwhile. A, a worthwhile, a commercial book. Because, uh, yeah, you know, they are a business. I've heard, I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's tough. It's getting tougher in some ways, and it's getting easier in other ways. Financially, it's not the best time to be an author. But creatively, it could be the best time to be an author. Because you can get your stuff out there, and you can do it in interesting formats. So you can do another other ways of storytelling, like using video and and audio so it's a it's how do a, you survive financially then do you get an advance on your books how does it work that's right i get an advance okay and then uh i also i do get a salary from esquire okay and uh and then i get luckily my books have done well enough that, that they do get royalties Great. so uh i feel um, every time someone buys the book how does it work yeah the, i get a, a percentage not a big one but a percentage of the sale. How do they measure sales? Is it just, I guess, because there's so many different ways to purchase a book? That's true. Yeah, and now it's changing because uh, you get a different percentage based on what the format is. So I get more for a hardcover, less for a paperback, and then even less for a Kindle book. So now you, you've just published a new book. Drop Dead Healthy, that's right. And it was about your quest to be healthy. That's it. Uh, it's sort of the end of a trilogy. So my first book was about trying to improve my mind. And then my second book was about trying to improve my spirit. This one was about the body. Can I perfect my body? So I, I tried to follow all the medical advice that I could and improve my diet, exercise, sleep, 
uh, stress level, sex life. How is your sperm motility? Could be better. Could be better. I mean, I went to a, there is a section on, uh, I broke the book up into body parts, and there is a section on the the private parts. And I went to a urologist, and this is, as they say, too much information, but I'll I'll, I'll say it anyway. My, uh, the urologist was very concerned because he said that I had low-hanging fruit. That was the phrase he used. I had the, uh, he said, the scrotum of a 70-year-old. Uh, I just like the, the idea of like walking in and someone being like, "I'm sorry, but you have low motility. Not as motile, not as motile as I'd like." Yeah, he was just—he was concerned. He was disappointed. And I found it actually quite like religion because you got all these fundamentalists who say, "You know, wheatgrass juice—that's the secret." There really is no secret. It's—it's it's just, uh, you know, a, a variety of. of foods, making sure they're whole foods, not in a can. Like Michael Pollan, the omnivore's dilemma. Mm -hmm. I think he's got a very good point. You know, he says his mantra is uh, eat food, mostly plants and not too much. I think that's pretty good advice. And it was interesting to read from you, not as much meat. I don't eat a huge amount of meat. I do eat fish and eggs, but yeah, I don't eat a huge amount of meat. And and why is that? Well, partly because I had this crazy but uh, lovable aunt who is a radical vegetarian. I loved her in the book. She with the purple scarf and the backpack. Hey, you remember her. So, yeah, she had been drilling anti-meat propaganda into my brain since I was like three years old. So she kind of warped me in that way. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I don't I don't love the taste of it. I guess I never... Since I didn't it wasn't get, about health reasons, though. It wasn't for... A little bit of health reasons, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that the bulk of evidence says a plant-based diet is better for you. But there are people who argue that. Like, there's the whole paleo movement, the caveman yes. movement. Yes. And they say we should be eating mostly meat. And what about um, supplements? You take some vitamins? I take very little. I take, Which ones? I do take vitamin B, B12, uh, and vitamin D. And why vitamin B12 and vitamin D? Vitamin B12 is good if you uh, don't eat a lot of meat because it's hard to get just from plants. And vitamin D just because uh, I found I was a, a little low on it. So, uh, and salmon I, oil? I do take that. Yeah, you're right. Fish oil. I saw that omega. on your desk. <laughs> I do enjoy that. I got the burp-free version. And then, uh, yeah, but that's about it. I take an aspirin, like a children's aspirin a day. You do do that? I do. I have some, I have another friend who does that. Why do you do that? Well, again, it has its pros and cons. You know, it's it's not great for your stomach, but, but it is good for your heart. So I think the benefits, for me at least, outweigh the, the cons. You shouldn't do it when, you know, I'm 44, so I only did it in the last couple of years. What is wrong with sitting all day? That was one of your big discoveries. Oh, sitting. Yeah, that is, that's one of my crusades. Sitting, I think, is, one of these doctors told me sitting is the new smoking, which I like because it's it's a little over the top, but I think he's got a point. It is really bad for you. It's bad for your heart. It totally, it resets your metabolism and uh, it increases heart disease. There, There are these terrifying statistics about how if you sit for more than four hours a day, then you're risk of heart disease goes up to sit by 60 percent so yeah i try not to uh to sit and, I, I, and you work from home so you can have this um 
treadmill as a desk. You've been using your treadmill, and I saw you stacked books on it, and then you put your computer on top of the books. That's it. I bought a treadmill, and uh, and then I just put my computer. I put books on top of it, and then I put my computer, so I walk while I type. And are you able to focus? You know what's weird? I am able to focus, and and I am not a particularly coordinated person. So I think if I can do it, anyone can do it. Okay. But yeah, I. Uh, I actually focus better because there are studies that show that when you're walking, you're, it, it helps your attention. Well, so uh, I think I do. And when I'm sitting, I, I'm always distracted. I always want to get up. I have too much nervous energy, so I always want to get up and, you know, go get something from the kitchen or go uh, talk to my wife. But when I does, walk, she work from home as well. She does. Okay, so how do you guys balance balance that? Um, do you have a schedule, or how does it work? Well, I'm not allowed in her uh, in her workspace. Okay. <laughs> so that's... Uh, uh, I like that the rule was set that way, but she can still go into yours? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm the one who's uh, a little less disciplined, so I'll always be wandering into hers. But yeah, so I'm not allowed without an invitation. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so it's, it's a little sad for me, but... But and then will you get to lunch together, or or not you, really? What's your yeah? So what is your because we have so little time to work because the kids are such time vacuums that uh, that we just work straight through. Okay, and so do you feel like you get more done because you're able to work from home? Uh, it's got its pros and cons. What are the pros uh, and cons? Well, the pros are you know no commute, and um, I do love my treadmill. Uh, the cons are. That yeah, there's the kids do not really respect the work law, social boundary. They yes, they're not into that, so they just barge in whenever they want, even though I've specifically told them not to. And also, I think there is a disadvantage to working from home that you don't get the energy, the intellectual energy of being in an office where you're bouncing ideas off of other people. So yeah, it, there there is it, there is a disadvantage there. Do you ever go into the Esquire office or? Very rare. Once a month, I would say. Okay. Okay. No, I mean, it's because this show is about work and part of that is like figuring out how people make these, how they make their dream jobs uh, work and what does it mean. I mean, I love my job and I love, if I had to choose, I would continue to work at home, but it definitely has its drawbacks, which I never expected. I feel isolated sometimes. Yeah, isolated. And there are a lot of studies that say being alone is a risk factor for depression and sometimes I feel like when I go out to lunch with someone and I actually just see another human face in front of me it really lifts my spirits yes. it's weird I feel like I'm slightly feral at the end of the day and most people are winding down and they don't want to be near someone exactly but I want to pet them because I'm so thrilled <laughs> to see them um, so in a nutshell what did you take away from this latest experiment would you say well uh, uh, several things one is you know, try not to sit, move around as much as possible. Even if you're sitting at your desk all day, get up every half hour and move around a bit. Uh, but also, in a larger sense, uh, I think the uh, the Oscar Wilde quote: "Everything in moderation, including moderation." I love I, that. I love that quote because it's. I think it's true in terms of health. You know, moderate, but that you want moderation. But there are times for immoderation. You know, it, if uh, if it's uh, Rosh Hashanah, it's okay. If it's Thanksgiving, it's okay to have a big feast and, and just like 
fatten yourself up once once a year, you know. Or Thursday. Or, or every Thursday. That's true. There's there's a lot of there's a big movement of people who think you should like um, just go crazy once a week. Timothy Ferris is the uh, he wrote a, a health book and he has the once a week like or food orgy once a week. Now. What is the latest thing that you've been doing? You've been walking around with this uh, contraption in your ear that looks like a cell phone. Right. This one and uh, is a. This is an article for Esquire. I ran out of batteries, sadly. But this is. This is the second time I've seen you with this, and you've run out of batteries both times. I'm going to point out. <laughs> that's right. You did see me. I've been doing it a long time, like two months. But uh, yeah, that's the that's the downside. But the idea is to videotape everything in your life, uh, and it's. Uh, it's a movement that was started by these uh, executives, computer executives. It's like chat roulette without the chat part. That's right. Or roulette part. Or roulette part. Uh, so it's nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is that you never know what's going to happen. So you want you want it on tape. And maybe it's going to be something wonderful. And, and it's also... Uh, it comes in handy, you know, if I have an argument with my wife. You know, 60% of our arguments are about, you You never said that. And now I have the proof. I can go back and say, look, I did say that, or I didn't say have that. Have you ever had had it turn out that you were incorrect, that you said you said something and you went back and I've had it. I've had it both ways, uh, that I was correct and that I was incorrect. Incidentally, you lose, I lose either way. So it's not really... A flawless plan because if I'm correct, then she just gets more annoyed, and if I'm incorrect, then uh, uh, she's more annoyed. So, do you watch tapes of you watching tapes? Yes, yes, it's a bit of an infinite loop problem because, yeah, I'll watch tapes of myself watching tape, then you'll have to watch that tape of yourself watching a tape, so it can go on forever. Is this are you in hope of doing a book on this? No, I don't think I could sustain it for a whole book, but I, I think it's a fascinating thing. And I do think, you know, it it's not uh totally uh fringe because I do think in 10 years everyone will be doing it. I I mean, I think it's certainly a good parable uh uh, to what's going on for kids who grow up in social media and certainly for yeah. your, your kids they are growing up with everything on camera and they, they know how to play with cell phones when they're so little and they love playing with cell phones but that's because they're imitating us that's right <laughs> and it's only going to get more I mean, Google is coming out with these glasses in January that uh, will have a little video they're like Google goggles or something. Such an invasion of privacy for other people. Though. I know it is an invasion of privacy, but luckily, you know, kids today have no sense of privacy, so that's yes, good so thing. that's fine, right? Do you work on the films when they get uh, purchased? When you get sometimes I do. Uh, other times, which I prefer, is just to wash my hands of it. That uh, how come? Because I think that it is. Uh, it's very stressful if you're in there trying to fight for your own vision. Mm-hmm. And if you just completely give up in the beginning, there's something very freeing about that and say, you know what? Do it. It's a different project. It's not, I have my book and you're going to do something else with the movie. So you really like, see yourself as a book author and as a journalist. That's right. Exactly. I mean, I wouldn't mind writing a movie, but I don't want to write one based on one of my books. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let George Clooney play you, and sure. let Penelope Cruz play your wife, and well, let him be with her. You, you are happy as it is. You don't need to, to do that. 
So no. I don't need to sleep with Penelope Cruz. Yeah. Is what you're saying. Yeah. Or get the Oscar. He can live three years longer. There you go. <laughs> Um, but I very much understand and appreciate that ability to say I'd rather not put myself through this um, and be keep your work sacred and, and let them have the film and turn it into whatever it is, and it may be phenomenal. Right, that's true. And I did uh, recently, uh, NBC optioned one of my books. The one was a collection of essays called My Life is an Experiment. Which is and so funny. I love that you... you um, thank you, Katie. Sent every... In, you had people in India... Oh, yeah, I outsourced my life. I hired a team of people in Bangalore, India, to do everything for me. So they answered my phone calls and answered my emails for me, and they argued with my wife for me. So it was a fantastic experience. And that's the one they they actually turned it into a pilot. They, you know, they, they made, they cast people. Donald Sutherland was my father-in-law. Oh, wow. So it was fun. And... and I went in with no, I think the secret is to go in with no expectations. You know, it's such a long shot to even get to have a pilot shot. It didn't get picked up, but I have very positive feelings about the experience just because it was such a a fun, bizarre ride. Yes. And I knew that the chances of going on were small, so enjoy it while it's going on. And you'd already tasted fame when you impersonated Noah Taylor. There you at go. At the Oscars. That's right. Which is another great article. Um, I should tell people to look for your website, AJ Jacobs, where they can find out um, what you're working on now. You have your blog. That your website is actually really resourceful. And oh, thank you. You can find all of your books there, and you can also go to Audible or Amazon, as well as uh, local bookstores. God forbid we support them. Um, <laughs> And yeah, and so now, are you on a book tour still for the book? Are you you're working on this article for Esquire? Yeah, I'm doing a bunch of Esquire stuff, and I am. Uh, uh, I have a couple of books that I'm book proposals that I'm supposed to write because I'm not sure which one I want to go with next. You still have to write book proposals. Well, I still have to write. I mean, they're not as detailed as I I had to when I was uh, starting out. But yeah, you know, I. I they want something in paper of what it's going to be. AJ Jacobs, thank you so, so much for being on Employee of the Month. This was My a treat. pleasure. Thanks for the honor. Thanks for the plaque. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please check out our website, employeeofthemonthshow.com. That's employeeofthemonthshow.com. You can nominate people. You can give me feedback about the interviews, what you liked, didn't like, people you'd like to hear from. Again, this show is about jobs, work, and culture. So trying to get a sense of how people spend their time, what they do with it. We uh, really only, we meaning me, like to only interview interesting, good eggs. Um, so the good part meaning that they have a moral compass. I probably will not take someone if they're a dictator or a parking ticket officer, but anyone else who has a really interesting job or career, please feel free to uh, let us know about them. Please donate if you have money. We could really use your help. It makes the sound quality that much better. It helps pay for people. And even me, I could afford to have three meals in a day instead of combining. That would be a delight. Uh, I really want to thank Dave Steffi for being just a wonderful partner in crime, as well as Ian Mazoff, New Wave Entertainment, and all of you for listening. Thank you so, so much. And how did I not thank Lady Parts? Thank you, Lady, for being the best co-host a host could ever have. I'm Katie Lazarus. Be well.